Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm your host. Welcome. Thank you for joining me for another episode of this podcast. Beth Hoffman is my guest today. Beth is a really interesting person to me. She's a farmer. She's an author. She's a journalist, a former professor. She is somebody that comes at food and agriculture from just about every angle that you can imagine. And we're going to talk about every angle that you can imagine today. It is a really interesting, really far-reaching conversation. And Beth has an amazing story, which is why I was so excited to talk to her. So she started her career as a journalist, wrote a lot about food, traveled the world writing about food, really interesting stuff there. She was also a professor living and working in the San Francisco Bay Area. She most recently taught at the University of San Francisco, where she created a food media class. She also taught at UC Berkeley and was really kind of immersed in that whole like San Francisco food culture of, you know, the 90s, the 2000s. Her husband, John, was also a butcher at that time. And yeah, they were one side, I guess I should say, of the food equation, the kind of coastal, high-end, that was their world. And it's a world that I'm a part of. I'm here in Massachusetts, and that is what interests me. We eat a lot of pastured meats, a lot of grass-finished beef, organic produce. We have a local CSA that we go to. You know me. You've, you've read my newsletter. You know the stuff. But Beth went from that to now for the last, I think, four years or so, she's been living on a farm in Iowa and living life as a farmer. And it's not out of nowhere. This is her husband John's family farm that they returned to. I think it's five generations have been farming this land in Iowa. It was a negotiating process with his father to figure out how they were going to transition this land from one generation to another. But they did it. They figured it out. They went through the process. Now, John and Beth have, have started on his family's land, Whipperwell Creek Farm. They are primarily interested in grass-finished beef, beef that is raised entirely on their land, fed entirely grass out on the pasture or hay that's been cut and stored from the pastures during the winter and things like that. No corn in their beef, no feedlots, sold directly to the consumer primarily, as well as using organic practices to raise vegetables and other things like that. And if you've ever driven through Iowa, that is not a common sight. Here in Massachusetts, we have a lot of those organic farms. We have a lot of things like that. There's a huge consumer demand for it. When you get out to Iowa, it is big agribusiness. Every farm practically is either raising corn and soy, soybeans, or they're raising hogs, chickens, in confinement units usually, being sold to big processors. It's a whole different way of farming, I guess. I mean, it's just that's, that's what you have in the Midwest. Very different from what we have certainly here in Massachusetts, but also what Beth was reporting on a lot out in, in San Francisco and Northern California. So all of that experience came together. Beth wrote this amazing book. It's called Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. And what I like about this book is it's partially a memoir. It's partially the story of, of moving out to this farm. I kind of expected going into it something like Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle, which writes about, you know, Barbara moving to this farm in Virginia, family farm, very similar kind of backstory. Kingsolver's is much more kind of romantic and this old school version of farming. Beth's is not only a very pragmatic approach to what it was like to transition to farming and, you know, your late 40s, but also it's a look at the economics of farming. In this case, Beth and her husband were very fortunate to have access to land. She talks about the challenges with that, especially when it comes to race. 
a lot of these farms obviously were on land that was originally indigenous land that was stolen by railroad companies or the U.S. government or, or what have you and sold to white settlers. There was a push at one point for more black farmers in Iowa in the early 20th century. Their presence in the state was very systemically taken away. And she talks about that in the book. And we talk about that in the interview today. It's really just there's a lot in the agricultural issue. It's not as simple, I guess, as just black and white, good and bad. You know, there's a lot of gray area in this story. So, yeah, it's interesting just how Beth can look at all these different sides of the equation and come up with pragmatic solutions to make agriculture more accessible, more sustainable. It's an interesting conversation. I am grateful that she was here. I hope you'll check out the book, Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. And by the way, before we get to the interview, if this conversation is interesting to you, I know you will love my newsletter. I write twice a week, oftentimes about food. I write a lot about the local farms that I visit here in Massachusetts, as well as when we go out on the road. We love stopping at at local farms and seeing things there. I also write about kind of the evolving relationships around home and family and work and all the big issues that are facing our country right now, race, guns, all of that. It's all there in the newsletter. It's here on the podcast. Go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter to sign up. And if you've been listening to this show for a while and you want to support the work that I'm doing, you can become a paying member of Willoughby Hills. Go to that same link, heathrasella.com slash newsletter. You can become a paying member. You will get early access to the podcast as well as some member-only exclusive posts on Willoughby Hills. All right, here it is, my conversation with Beth Hoffman. I don't know what I was expecting, I guess, when I read your book. I should have probably read the title closer. But like hearing this, the headline, I guess, of like a family moving from the city to the country conjures up like Green Acres or something like that. And, you know, like I imagine maybe a memoir that's about the trials and tribulations and things of farming. But it's a very economic book, too. And I wonder why you decided to take that approach with this content. Yeah, it's a good point. It's not a year of Provence. Right. I think, you know, as a journalist, so I I have been covering food and agriculture for probably 25 years now. And I just felt like I hadn't read a book that was really fair to farmers. Yeah. That really there was a lot of mythology around it, but that I had done a lot of time talking to farmers who did like sustainable things, all different, really interesting, cool things. And I always kind of left thinking in the back of my mind, you know, if this is so awesome, like, why isn't everybody doing it? Oh, right. Sure. And I also at the same time was coming out to Iowa, meeting my husband's father and people who were raising corn and beans. And it just became so clear to me that they were also doing things Not because they were sort of the minions of big business or brainwashed, but like they were trying to make economic choices, choices that were good for them and their families. And I just I felt like I really hadn't ever read something that was fair to them and and really expressed like the experience of farmers making those choices, be it sustainable or corn or whatever, whatever kind of terms you want to use for any of it. I try not to be real judgmental about any of it, um, but just kind of presenting it as these are decisions that people make for a reason. Sure. I I mean, it's kind of speaks to a broader issue, I think, in this country of just financial literacy in general, that like 
no matter what profession you end up going into, even if you, you go the white collar track, like people don't talk about student debt, for example, or just like there, there's this weird notion that when you turn 18, you should just know how to handle finances. And it's a lot more complicated than anybody talks about. I mean, obviously, including in agriculture. Yeah. I mean, I remember having a conversation with my stepson about, you know, I said, well, then you got to get, you want to rent a house. I said, well, you got to get, you know, your credit rating. And he was like, what do you mean? I never had a credit card. Why, why would I have a credit score? And yeah. I was like, because um, that's how it works. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But we have very little financial literacy, economic literacy, um, even just understanding, you know, when I buy a house with a mortgage, like how much am I actually paying over time? Sure. Yeah. We don't talk about it. Yeah. No. And, and I'm grateful that you're you're kind of bringing light to this. I'm curious, going back, you talked about your reporting career prior and kind of writing about ag issues and things like what was your sense of what it meant to be a farmer before you actually were one? Well, I mean, I knew it was hard. I guess my sense was like, you know, it was hard physically. Yeah. That I kind of understood. Well, I, I thought I understood. I mean, now that you're doing it, of course, it's it's different. But, you know, I, I think I understood that. I think I understood. Well, I think that the, the media, myself included in that, it paints a picture often where it's like this year something is happening. This year we're having trade issues. This mm. year there's a drought. Sure. And it's not like we don't contextualize in the media. We're not very good at contextualizing and saying this is actually a prevalent problem for generations, um, not just this year. It's yeah. that this year is throwing another wrench in the works. It's really important to look at it that way. And I hadn't, I had not ever thought about it that way. I mean, that context, like it's interesting now for you, I think, kind of being on the ground there in Iowa and actually putting shovels into the earth and things like that. Like, I'm sure it gives you a different sense of it. But like, if, if somebody is a journalist covering this and they're in New York or California or, you know, some big city somewhere, what piece do you think is missing? How do they how do they gain that context to understand that, as you say, these aren't singular issues, but are part of a broader pattern that's been happening for a long, long time? It's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> Not an easy one to answer. You know, I think alongside with our ignorance about economic issues is our ignorance of history. Mm. You know, we kind of think about uh, agriculture in particular as being like, there was the Depression, things weren't so good, yeah, and, and now we're here, you know, and like, or or maybe actually we have a, a phase of that we talk about sometimes is like the the post war period where chemicals became more widespread. Sure. But the, those are like the three points in history is like depression, post war now, if that if you could consider that history. And so I don't know, I think talking to people about the generations of issues that their families have had and one book in particular that you know, I, I think is amazing is um, The Farmer's Lawyer hmm. by Global is just so helpful in thinking about historical moment and time. It talks about the farm bankruptcies in the 80s and the farm crisis and how it's not really what you think it is either. Uh, you kind of think like, oh, well, people just got in over their heads. And it was like, no, there was like an actual concerted effort to foreclose on farms by the government. It's just a fascinating thing to think about in those terms, you know, when you think about a historical moment in time and you really dig into it. Sure. I'd say, you know, really kind of trying to think about the history of these things 
and why they got how they are today, not just here. here's where we are. Why did we get here? Sure. And, and I mean, that's something that you dive into in the book as well, particularly when it comes to race. I mean, I, I think obviously of farming as a very white profession, but I never really understood the why. And I mean, you talk about, you know, from an indigenous side, breaking treaties and stealing land and things from Native Americans and then disenfranchising black landowners as well. And literally like systemically taking their land. Like, it's not that there never were black farmers. It's that there were policies that literally took the land away from them. Yeah. at that, And there's a book, um, Freedom Farmers, that talks about the cooperative movements in uh, black communities in the South and how, I mean, they came up with just amazing concepts. Like they had this one idea in a cooperative. They would have, I think it was called a pig bank, and you would actually like rent out the pig and then you'd get the piglet and you'd kind of bring back the main pig and then donate pigs back. But you'd you would end up with your own breeding stock. Hmm. I mean, it's a great it's a great concept, but like those communities were surrounded by people who were hostile to them and not giving them loans, not buying products from their farms. It's a very active discrimination. And I think also, you know, things just like how the railroad went down, you know, and how yeah. those companies were just given these enormous amounts of land around the railroad. That was often owned by someone else, uh, native groups, for one. And then those companies just sort of made up advertising to say, oh, this is great land all along here. Everybody come on out. Do farming. It's going to you know, make a million bucks. When it was all hype. Yeah. And people just, you know, were, um, I talk about the book Prairie Fires, I think it's called, um, that talks about um, Laura Ingalls Wilder and the the realities of her family was like, I, I mean, they're so mind boggling what those families actually went through. Yeah, we've kind of painted this cute picture when I, you know when I was a kid and that show was on. We're all watching them run through the prairie and it's just this beautiful life. Right. When I mean, it really was not at yeah. all. I mean, that you, you literally talk about like Pa Ingalls being one of the people that was affected by these land speculators that said, oh, yeah, you know, there's great land here and he'd buy it and go out there. And it, it literally wasn't farmable. Right. And he kept moving and moving and trying to get to the next place where that pot of gold was going to be. And really, like, I mean, I think at one point, like grasshoppers, I believe it was, was like, I mean, destroyed everything, everything in the area year after year. Um, yeah. it's things like that and these enormous fires and just, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it goes back to what you're saying about just it's a hard life, I guess. And like you don't, I think we tend to romanticize the notion of a farm and, and sometimes the reality isn't that, I guess. One other thing that you dove into there um, around kind of the myth making of farming and things or as we were talking about just those periods of history like we think we're in this time now with these monocrops of corn and soy and things, but that even monocropping isn't a new idea or specialization. Like I, I'm guilty of it myself, thinking that every farm in the old days had a nice kitchen garden and, you know, diversity of plants and animals and things. But that wasn't always the case. Yeah, I mean, I think most farms had that kitchen garden because you didn't have, obviously, you know, refrigeration. You sure. didn't you couldn't, you know, pop over to the store and get bananas. Not that you could grow bananas out west, <laughs> sure. but 
uh, you know, apples, whatever it was. But yeah, our country was established as a colony to supply colonial powers with exports. Yeah, That's how it was set up. And so the whole notion of it was was like you were going to grow tobacco or cotton or corn or wheat and send it back, you know, send it, send yeah. it out. You know, at the time, perhaps one could argue, I guess, that it made more sense because the land wasn't so expensive. But today, you know, taking some of the most expensive land in the world and growing the least expensive commodities, yeah. that is a, a really strange economic problem right there where you think about there's never will be a return on investment. The land itself is the investment. Yeah. You will never recoup that in your farming. Yeah. I mean, the the title of the book alone, Bet the Farm, you kind of imply this idea that, well, I guess you, you make it explicit, I guess I should say, you, you make this uh, analogy to like a casino or, or a slot machine that basically farming is like you, you have this sense when you're ahead that you're ahead, but you never really are. I mean, you cite that in the median income for farms was $296 in 2019. But that that was the first year and I think four years that it had been a positive number that prior to that it was negative. And like, I don't know, when I, when I see acres upon acres of cornfields and, you know, big combines and things working them, I imagine a profitable enterprise. <laughs> and to hear it's less than $300 in a year is, is pretty startling. Yeah. I mean, and to clarify, like this year, I think it's t a negative 1200 Wow. That's the median income. So, I mean... <clears throat> Uh, it's one of the, uh, maybe the, you know, the criticisms of, that I've, I've heard from the book about the book is like, well, there's all sorts of tax shenanigans and people sort of investing in land and then calling it a farm, but they don't really farm or on your schedule F, you could have all of these write-offs where you could, you know, invest in a combine and then, um, you know, sort of write it off and yeah. hide your profits. But like I, I had, I, I was at the um, South Dakota Book Festival and a young woman came up to me who, you know, she's like, I'm from one of those really large farms. I mean, we have a lot of land, we farm a lot of ground, we have a lot of livestock. And she said, cash flow is always an issue. We get mm. huge subsidies, government checks come in and they go right back out the door. I think that the concept where, in order to farm like that, even at that really large scale, that you have to have that kind of very expensive equipment. And so you're buying it on years that you get a little bit ahead and, you know, where there's more of a profit than you go out and you get the combine. You still need the combine. It's not like, you know, my mom, the accountant, keeps saying, like, you can't hide money that, like, you can't have a deduction for something that you didn't actually spend the money on. The deduction mm, sure. is less than the expense. Right. So, yes, very wealthy people, the Bill Gateses of the world that are amassing the land, part of it, it that, you know, figures into the equation is, is that the land is the investment itself. Mm. And someday you could sell it for extraordinary amounts of money. Or just stockpile because you're going to have a, you know, billionaire, you know, enclave when everything, you know, when Armageddon comes or whatever <laughs> you're going to do. I don't know. Yeah. But you're still at the end of the day, you're not walking away with 
cash, you know, Silicon Valley cash sure. where you're like buying a nice car and putting your kids through college. You know, you maybe have a, a nice new pickup for the farm. Yeah. You actually need a pickup for the farm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's another myth that you talk about a lot is is this idea of, of bigger is better and that farmers are encouraged to think that, you know, they need this this next type of equipment or, you know, these hybrid seeds or whatever it is. Like just there's always a need for something else. And part of that is just the competition that like instead of seeing everybody around you as as suppliers in the same supply chain, you're all pitted against each other as competitors and some of that is real and economic. Obviously, you're you're competing for you know trying to sell this to the same grain elevator or whatever it is, and and trying to get that profit. But there's also a piece of it you talk about where like you start competing each other to the point that the market gets flooded and the prices drop. But like it's it's always this. I guess I'm, part of it is I'm reacting to what you said before too about co-oping and just this idea of working together for a greater good versus working separately from each other. It's a very American idea, I guess, of competing with each other. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, co-ops have lots of problems. So, sure. I mean, I tried to, you know, really talk about that too. It's, again, another thing we tend to idealize in the sort of progressive world. And we, we really like the concept of cooperatives, but they're really tough. Humans are hard to work together, you know. But yes, I mean, the mythology of bigger is better, you know, when you break it all down, it means by definition that you and your neighbor cannot both exist. Mm. You both cannot farm. Right. So by definition, you have to, one of you is in and one of you is gone. Mm. And that sort of attitude has really, you know, been what has destroyed rural communities. If we can't all be together or we can't all diversify and grow different things and create some sort of scenario where we can nourish our communities, um, literally and economically, I suppose, then yeah. we just, yeah, we're, we're individuals kind of cutthroating it uh, at everybody else's expense. I mean, having lived in it now for three or four years and obviously having visited it for many years prior, but being there on the ground in Iowa now, where do you see that sense of competition coming from? I mean, like, is that, I don't know, is that the USDA? Is that local organizations? Is that seed company? Like, or is it, is it all of it, I guess? Like, where, where does that culture come from, I guess? Well, I think it's the same thing. Like, it's always been, if people have always been growing corn, people have always had hogs, what's happened is, is like that scale, the profit margins have gotten so small and the cost of equipment is so high. You know, I don't think people literally think like, oh, I got to put the guy next door out of business. I don't I don't actually think people are consciously thinking that. Yeah. It's that, you know, really, if you took this to its logical end, that is what's got to happen. And I, I think, you know, you see it kind of is a little bit the mentality is, is everybody's working together. You know, you have the pork producers of this like fancy new building at the Iowa State Fair and, uh, you know, everybody's grilling and it's fun and having a pork chop on a stick and whatever. Yeah. In reality, those farmers, there's less, you know, the hogs are getting tighter and tighter in this state where... A lot of these companies are closing up a lot of the the hog confinement units. They're mm. not 
they're not working with people. Um, the and why, price why of, is that? I hadn't I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, I, I'm not. You know, it's something that I've just um, a colleague of mine, Cheryl Tevis, has written about it and talked about the fact that it's and even like with FFA, people are showing less and less hogs. Hmm. Goats are apparently like now took up half the hog house um, at the fair. It's become really interesting. It's not like there's less hogs, yeah, less hog producers, and it's become such a tight market that places like Smithfield, who actually own the hog confinement units, most yeah. of the companies do not. Like I explain in the book, that's it's a very complicated system how that works. But yes, yeah, Smithfield announced closing hog facilities and processing. Um, maybe it's just that they're trying to again, consolidate into less actual um, processing facilities. Yeah. But it that's the implications for the farmers. Then there's going to be less of you. Right. We don't really need you, you know? Yeah. You're just like hog in the wheel. And when we find a better cog, you know, we, we can move it all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's what happened to manufacturing over the last 40, 50 years in this country as yeah. well. Exactly. Um, Same system. Yeah. I want to kind of take it from the big picture now and and get specific about your farm. I'm curious, like when you and your husband decided to move to Iowa and change what was his family's farm from, you know, very conventional operation, corn and soy and things like that, to a a grass finished beef ranch, essentially, and, and growing organic vegetables and things. You talk a lot in the book, I guess, about some of the challenges of that and just finding the support and finding the market for it. Where did the idea for wanting to raise those products come from? So John grew up here. He left, went to college, and then ended up in the Bay Area at culinary school. Yep. So he went to culinary school in San Francisco, and then he was a chef at White Tablecloth Restaurants, and then he became a wine buyer and eventually a butcher. Yeah. So he was actually... In San Francisco, you know, throughout the 90s, when all of this stuff was kind of taking off. Sure. And he saw and heard consistently, you know, from chefs about what kind of demand there was and not enough supply. And just, I think even, you know, myself being involved in just kind of the reporting side of that and talking to a lot of farmers in the Bay Area, uh, you know, in other places around the world, too. Just hearing how different that was and the reasons why they made those changes. And I just think that for the two of us, there never really was a question about us doing it in a different way. Yeah. Uh, Maybe for John, because he had grown up with it, he might have, you know, he knew how to probably go out and, well, I think you usually hire out spraying, but, you know, it. he understood that whole system. Sure. I was not part of it, but I think initially when we started to, we, we, we didn't put in any row crops, so we didn't have any corner beans. So we right initially planted everything in hay and went to pasture. And then when the cattle came up, it was time for them to go to market and to bring them to the sale barn. I think we did it the first time, but it was just sort of like this idea that we had grown these animals that we had taken such care of that we were just going to drop them off and they'd end up in a feed lot. It, it just didn't jive with either of us. Like we were both like, uh, I, I don't want to do that. That's not 
neither of us wanted to do it. Because just to clarify, that's kind of the path, right? Is like a farmer raises young cattle on their land and then they take it to an auction house and it's essentially going to a feedlot to get fattened up and slaughtered and sold as, as conventional beef. Yes. As you drive around the United States and look out and see cows everywhere, those are what's usually just cow-calf operations yeah. where the calves are until they're maybe nine months old. In a good situation like here, you actually have a sale barn. Many, 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 many places do not have any kind of sale barn where you have an auction of any kind. You have one buyer in your area, and they tell you how much they're going to pay. Yeah. And that's the end of the story. So if the market's really low, that's the market's really low. And it doesn't matter at that point either, like if you've been raising them on pasture and, you know, rotating them through, or if you've got them in a barn and just feeding hay or corn or whatever, like... There's no distinction ultimately when it comes to the market at that point. There's no distinction. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's, you know, by a definition, like commodities, they just go all heaped together. Yeah. So, about, you know, the bad product is kind of heaped in with the great product. And somewhere there's an average kind of product in the middle. I mean, at the sale barn, I mean, people are visually seeing. So you can get a little bit more money if your cattle look good. Gotcha. But I guess what I'm getting at is like, you you went to the sale barn a couple of times and tried that, but there's not a huge advantage to you as a farmer, even trying to raise the cows as ethically as you could. It doesn't really matter in the end to your pocketbook. Like going grass finished gets you a much better end product yes. financially and ethically and kind of all around. Yes. No one at the sale barn could have cared how they were fed Um, They care about some really odd things, like they care about them being black. Mm. That gives you more money. Interesting. They care about, you know, Angus, uh, which is black typically. So, I mean, like stuff like that. And to grass finish, you typically have a bit of a different body shape than what goes into that commodity market. What's what's the highest, you know, choice cuts. A, A grass finish beef is is better if it's like a kind of stockier, smaller framed because they finish better on yeah. grass. So that's not as um, valued at the at the market. Yeah. But, but I mean, for you guys, it was a process too of even finding a distribution means, right? Like that was a whole challenge in and of itself. It's not like there's an easy place, I guess, to go and just market grass finished beef. Now it's a little bit better. We have a company that's called 99 Counties that I think is actually going national now. So everybody could get it anywhere soon. But the 99 Counties refers to 99 Counties in Iowa. And they are trying to promote pasture-raised animals in Iowa. Yeah. Okay. So that's a little bit better. But yes, to your point, though, if you do anything outside of the commodity market, so whatever that happens to be in your region, if it's wheat, if it's hogs, if it's poultry, if you're doing anything outside of that, you have to then be creating the entire food chain from your farm to the customer. So that means you'd have to do your own marketing, your own distribution, your own well, not processing in in terms of meat because yeah. we have to use slaughterhouses legally. But you, uh, the point just being is, is like in addition to the farm work, there's all this other work that's just and uh, the marketing, the distribution, the processing, the value added, whatever it happens to be. So it's very, very different. 
Yeah. I mean, you talk about the challenge, too, of even understanding what kind of funding programs are available, like for organics and things like that, you know, going to a local field office and people not being familiar with the policies, not through any fault of their own. I mean, just it, it's not something that they're getting regularly asked about and, and weren't aware of, but it was kind of a learning curve for, for both you and the people in these offices to kind of understand what kind of government grants and things like that were available. Yeah, it's just it's very set up. Um, the USDA offices, the extension offices, the university, you know, programming and um, any kind of degrees, everything is catering to that commodity market. So if I wanted to know right now the average cost of raising corn or raising a hog in Iowa, I could look it up and probably in 30 seconds have that information for you. Yeah, That is not the case if I wanted to know, you know, how much would it cost to grow a carrot? Mm. How much would it cost to grow a grass-finished beef? So it's set up, you know, in a university system that way, but it's also at the local offices. So every county... Um, in Iowa has a USDA office, but it's set up so that basically if you're if you're registered with them, they have all the forms and everything ready for you for corn and beans, you know, which kind of programs there are, which you they can recommend, which you should sign up for. But when we walked in there and said, well, we're wondering about transitioning to organic, they had absolutely no idea. Yeah, And in fact, told us that there was nothing when there are programs available. And and like you said, I mean, if you think about there's a farm bill every five or so years. So there's like new legislation. There's new things to learn as a employee. Those employees there are incredibly overworked. Sure. And um, have a huge amount of clients. For each person at the NRCS, for example, and I, I've you know I've did a project for a group and got to talk to a lot of landowners that are interested in in conservation. Those employees make or break what people are doing. So, in the counties where you had somebody who was really interested in it and was calling you to say, "Oh, there's a new program," and yeah. I thought this would work for you. Those people are doing amazing conservation, and the rest of us are kind of, you know, attempting always to get some information, <laughs> but it's a little like pulling teeth. Yeah. Well, I mean, another challenge you talked about a little bit there of just like finding a market for these products and having to do a lot of direct marketing and things that, like, I was thinking I was I'm part of a CSA and was at the farm this morning near me. You know, I'm in Massachusetts. It's a it's a very dense, <laughs> densely populated state that has done a lot to preserve, you know, old farmland. But there's a lot of housing right around it as well. Like it's not hard for me to go and find a local farm that's growing organically, that's growing pastured meat or grass finished uh, beef like that's very accessible for me when yeah. I think about being in the middle of Iowa where you're basically surrounded by other farm families, and you alluded a little bit to it, but a lot of the small towns that used to be there have collapsed, and you know it's it's largely just other farm families around you. There's not kind of that built-in market. I wonder just the challenge for you of of actually selling 
the beef and the produce and all that, like, how did you find your customer base? Well, you know, one thing to point out, though, is, is that in places like in Massachusetts or the Hudson Valley in New York or Sonoma County in California, those places are set up where there's a lot of customers who are interested in well-raised products and they kind of know the game. You know, they know how to go to the farmer's market or sure. to get a community-supported agriculture box. But land access is a huge issue and much more valuable land. Yeah. And so you've got that kind of offsetting, you know, the excitement of consumers around those areas. For us, you know, there was a little, there's a fair amount of word of mouth about, you know, around the book that people in Iowa came to us about buying beef. We've spent a lot of time trying to do a lot of email marketing. And oddly enough, just recently, I started using Facebook, which I'm not a fan of at all. <laughs> and I find it like the worst interface and yeah. I still can't really figure it out. But holy cow, like people are just contacting us and contacting us like in pretty rural areas, like uh, other people in nearby towns, people who are willing to drive really long distances. So it's been kind of amazing. Yeah, I had really discredited that network through Facebook, but it's really super powerful, I guess, yeah. unfortunately. And I guess like for you being you know, kind of a lone island out there uh, doing this and, you know, people are willing to drive to seek that out, like getting bigger and thinking about like if your practices were to spread to other farms, I feel like a piece of that is changing consumer minds and consumer tastes and things that like, I think it's a big ask sometimes for people to want to eat seasonally or to want to eat, you know, better foods when anything and everything is available at the supermarket year round. Like it, it takes a huge mindset shift, both on the consumer side and the farmer side. And I'm curious, just like scaling what you're doing, not necessarily for your farm, but for other farm, you know, if your neighbors wanted to do what you were doing, how do you, what do you think it would take for that to work? It's a very good question. How much customers are willing to spend? But I will say that I think that there's a change, there's a change coming whether people want it or not yeah. in terms of the weather. We had just like some very short, actually, hot spells this summer comparatively to the rest of the nation. Like we had like a week of around 100 degree, crazy humid. Yeah. You know, there's all these reports of cattle dying and that's a real huge problem that people I, I really had never heard about that happening before but like throughout the state of Iowa hundreds of cattle dying and the reason for that is is because the system with feedlots is not set up for the health of these animals right. it's not set up for extreme heat and extreme weather if you couple that with the unfortunate circumstances in, a pla in places like California with so many fires and Florida and heat, you're going to end up with a situation where if we don't diversify our agriculture in a place like Iowa, the limited produce that's going to be available from these places is going to be extremely expensive anyway. Yeah, And I, I just see it as a huge opportunity for the state and states like it 
where we have water. I mean, it's a drought year and we still have water in ponds. We still have water in the creek. Yeah. That is not the same as drought in New Mexico, as drought in California, sure. you know? And it's an opportunity. It, we could take advantage of having some of the best soil in the world and stop the erosion and stop the monocropping where everybody's in competition growing the same exact thing. And that would probably be a better system for farmers, for communities, for individuals, for everybody, really, except maybe Cargill, you know? Yeah. I think consumers wanting things to be a certain way is only going to go so far um, and, and complaints about how expensive food is. And, you know, it, that if you go back to who's making the money out of it, it's all those companies. Sure. So they are making money off of everybody else's bad fortune. Yeah. It, it really, I don't think, is like a major educational campaign to convince people of the reality of that. We might need actual news sources that tell people that, but to me, that that's it's not just about the education. It's about the reality. Yeah. I just don't, I mean, maybe my foresight is limited here, but I have a hard time imagining a day where a big company like Cargill or Smithfield or, you know, any of these are in a desperate position where change is, is forced upon them. And and maybe it is closer than you say, but I just, you know, uh, that, that they're able to spend millions on litigation or whatever it is. Like, they seem to have that war chest. And even if the weather changes and, and you know, the reality on the ground changes, I'm worried that's going to fall more to the farmer's than to the big companies, and it's still going to be business as usual with them. Yeah, that 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 part might be true, but yeah. the farming practices potentially will have shifted. Yeah, there's also interesting things. You know, there's there's a group that we've done. We're doing some work with called Bionutrient.org. Are you familiar with them? I'm not. No. So they are doing this really exceptional work, although it's a little slow and painstaking at the moment, where they are able to look at the bionutrient, like the density, the nutrient density of foods and assess. So we send in our meat, let's say, I'll give you an example, because otherwise it might be too complicated. Sure. But we sent in the meat to get our nutrient density looked at. So compared to all the other beef, how nutrient dense is our beef? But in addition to that, we sent in manure samples, soil samples, forage samples. So what they are doing is they are actually aligning. They're finding that the better practices are making more nutritious food, hmm. which even if you're a Cargill, if you are putting on packages that you have X you know, high level of protein in your food or whatever, that is going to stimulate a desire to have to purchase those products which are raised better than the rest of it, uh, rest of the products, if this is making sense. Sure. Yeah, no, totally. And I think it's a distinction that like the organic program has struggled with because there, that's always been a thing that like, you know, there's always that that asterisk that like it doesn't mean it's healthier, quote unquote, you know, right, but right. you've got data now to say that. Exactly. So if you can align that exactly with these huge data sets they're putting together, but then the clincher is this part. They are also uh, working to create handheld consumer devices that you as a consumer can take to the supermarket and just shine on your carrots hmm. and look at this carrot and that carrot, wow. which character 
Do I want the higher nutrient density? Well, that's that one. And so if consumers can do that and make the decisions for themselves, I think that's a no-brainer, especially if it's like a phone app sure. or something that's super easy to use. Yeah. Um, if you get that box of, you know, special K and it's telling you it's this has this nutrition in it and it actually doesn't, and you can tell that. I think that's a problem for those companies. Sure. But your point is right. I mean, I don't see them losing a lot of power. Power is really the corner piece of all of this. The economic power, the legislative and political power. It's been a problem all along. So I don't know how we deal with that in our country. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge issue <laughs> and certainly outside of, of the scope of the book. But it's it's something I know you're facing kind of daily there on the farm. Um, I want to kind of wrap it up, I guess, with just you, you acknowledge in the book the privilege that you have of being on this land that's been in your in your husband's family for like five generations or something. Right? It's been it's been many, yeah. many years, I guess, and that that in and of itself gives you a huge head start combined with selling real estate in the Bay Area that, that gave you a nice nest egg to be able to do this. But like. I know, at least I'm. I feel like I'm seeing on social media and places that there is an urge for younger people to get their hands into the dirt, to get out there and and want to understand where their food comes from and and do some of this work. And also, I mean, we talked about the racial issues before as well. For for people that haven't historically had access to land, to want to be doing this work as well. What is your advice to to aspiring farmers that you know want to take a similar journey to you that that you have, but maybe don't have the same means or have the same access. Like there's a huge barrier to entry there for them. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, it's an issue that I deal with throughout the book because it shows it, you know, it, it rears its head in different ways, that lack of access and, and a lot of privilege in the hands of the few. But I think too, you know, what I, I talked about earlier, it's like a lot of those farmers who want to be farming are very focused on these very sexy areas of the country yeah. where a lot of the hard work has already been done by generations of farmers who have started organic farms and changed the public's mind and done educational programs and you know, the the different families that have spent a lot of time and energy doing that in places like the Bay Area, sure. the Alice Waterses of the world and the Mac McGruders. And so I, I think that really thinking about it in a bit of wider terms, especially when you couple together just, you know, the economics of how hard it is to buy a piece of land in Sonoma. I sure. mean, it's just not really an option. But um, I think there are a lot of farms out here that are interested in creating um, opportunity for a next generation. I, I like to say now that like regenerative ag is in the middle. It needs generations of humans. Mm. It's not just about putting an easement on my land and then kind of kicking the can down the road for the next generation to figure out. We have to find the people to farm this land in different ways for at least a generation now. Yeah. It's not really like we're just going to, you know. So anyway, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about different concepts of how we might do that. And we actually just this summer have gotten hooked up with a young farmer 
who's super excited about trying uh, small grains in particular, like he wants to raise buckwheat and and do just experimental things in addition to helping us with livestock. Yeah. So he actually, they moved here from Colorado. They were living in Denver, he and his now wife. They were living in Denver, but they were from small towns in like southeastern Colorado where, you know, they would have returned, but there was no water. There's no, they, right. he just saw no future for the farms in those areas. So they decided that Iowa was the place. They got in touch with the Practical Farmers of Iowa and PFI uh, set up a tour of all different kinds of farms and places who would be excited to work with someone like him. And they toured around and they luckily for us picked us and moved here to a town that's about um, 20 minutes away. Wow. So... You know, the concept is, is we have a lot of logistics to figure out for next year about if, you know, he's going to do these small grains, how would that work and who's going to pay for it and what if the tractor breaks down and whatever. But we'll do it together, you know, and we'll figure it out. And with the help of Practical Farmers of Iowa and, um, you know, the Iowa Farmers Union and other groups who can help with legal support and ideas. I think we, we're going to be able to do it. And it might take a little while. But, you know, that's the kind of thing we're excited about. And um, we have a few farmers like that who are young and, and excited. And I would say, you know, my advice would be you got to cast a little bit of a wider net. You know, you can't be right outside of Manhattan or in Asheville, North Carolina, you probably can't do that. <laughs> but there's a lot of places in the country that need your excitement. All right, Beth Hoffman there. What'd you think? She is an amazing wealth of knowledge just from every side of this story. It's so interesting, just like imagining her life experience, you know, from, from every angle there. She's, she's got it, she understands it, and she has a very global view of some of these problems. I don't know what it takes, honestly, to start transitioning to more sustainable agriculture across the board. Obviously, there's a need for it. And I hope that there can be the right incentive structure in place, whether that's through the government or through other grant programs or whatever it is. We need to start embracing more sustainable practices very, very soon. Or we're just going to continue to contribute to this issue of climate change and a warming planet and an unsustainable food supply. It's not healthy for us either. I talk about that a lot. Go back and listen to my interview with Dr. Stephen Gundry if you're interested in, in hearing more about that. We dive into all those issues. But anyways, that's the show for today. Please leave a five-star review if you're listening to an Apple podcast. Please leave some comments. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. And if you're interested, sign up for the newsletter. You will get alerted to every new podcast episode, as well as get two issues a week, looking at everything from sustainability, agriculture, urbanism. I write about a lot, and I, I hope you'll join me for the journey, heathrasella.com slash newsletter. And again, you can become a paying member and help support the work that I do here on this podcast. I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. Please give me a follow there. Let's connect over there. And again, leave a five-star review. Leave a review in, in Apple. Love hearing from y'all. I will talk to you in two weeks. Until then, stay safe.